Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Today's episode is going to wrap up the Terror in California series on this podcast. And if you haven't already done so, please check out the previous episodes of True Blue Crime and all podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. And more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can help support the show on Patreon, it's greatly appreciated. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. It helps expand the listenership, and I appreciate it so much. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. As I said, this is part four of a four-part series on the terror in California, uh, which covers the Golden State Killer. So if you have not listened to parts one through three, I highly recommend it. This is probably the closest to a standalone episode in this series, but the whole series is going to make a lot more sense, and this episode will too if you listen to them in order. So I'll just give a brief summary here in case it's been a little while since you listened to parts one through three, but... In parts 1 through 3, the crimes of the Cordova Cat Burglar, the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker were broken down, and the similarities and escalation of monstrosity was discussed. In this episode, we will discuss key points in the investigation after the Golden State Killer's last known major crime, how he was identified, the life story of this monster of a man, and the story of him facing justice. This all starts in July of 1997. A criminalist working in Contra Costa County named Paul Holes had just finished reading Sexual Homicide, Patterns, and Motives. This is a book that was written by the FBI Criminal Profiling Unit founding members John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and Dr. Ann Burgess. So if you haven't seen it, there's a Netflix series called Mindhunter that does a great job of doing a fictionalized portrayal of how the FBI criminal profiling unit now known as behavior analysis unit uh, got started and this is a unit that started in the late 70s and it actually kind of started because of cases like the east area rapist and several other serial killers that were operating during the 70s the fbi saw a need to try to understand why there were so many serial killers kind of popping up all over the country at this time so these guys started this criminal profiling unit and what they did was they interviewed some of the most heinous serial killers to see if they could establish a pattern in their life and their crimes and then compare those patterns amongst serial killers so they were interviewing guys like ed kemper the son of sam and other notorious serial killers to see if they could establish a pattern and then they wrote this book that after paul holes read he's working in Contra Costa County, he realized that the files for the East Area Rapist could benefit by someone looking at them with fresh eyes and a new approach. So he took the pattern analysis and combined it with advances in forensic technology that had occurred since the 70s and 80s, and we're mainly talking DNA here. And this 
new approach led him to believe he could prove one man was just was responsible for many of the crimes now this isn't a new thought there were investigators from the original east area rapist task force that believed that the galita attacks and other attacks by the original night stalker were related to the east area rapist but they were told to stand down and from what i could research about this basically it was 1979 and soon to be president and at this time presidential candidate ronald reagan and governor of california at the time had set up his campaign headquarters at his ranch outside of galita and There had just been three women killed in the area, and one of their bodies was left very close to Reagan's house. Now, a 22-year-old security guard would be arrested and found to be in possession of the murder weapon for all three killings, and he did confess to the killings afterwards. But this was some major negative press for the Reagan campaign at the time. I saw some newspaper articles that stated, you know, some sensationalized headlines like body found in reagan's backyard something along those lines so having just come off of these this triple homicide or or i guess three different murders but related to the same killer the sheriff was not going to be happy about the media catching wind of another serial killer or any ties to the east area rapist working down in, in the area so the subsequent murders including the ones in Kalita, were kept on the down low and no mention of rape was made to the media. And this was to prevent the tie-in between the East Area Rapist and the attacks in Southern California. So even when the media tried to link all of the killing as the work of a single night killer, police disputed it and claimed there was no evidence of a link between the crimes. And they would go on to say that you know some attacks are in Northern California, or North, North of LA, some attacks are South of LA, some attacks used a gun, some attacks used uh, you know, improvised weapons. So they were telling the media they did not believe him to be related, even though there were several investigators that did in fact believe that all of these were related and several of them believed that it was possibly the work of the East Area Rapist. In 1979, we'll talk about this later uh, again, but um, in the 70s, which doesn't seem that long ago, I mean, I was born in 1981, so just prior to, I guess, me being born, this is the time frame we're talking about, rape was not considered really, a, I guess, a heinous crime. It wasn't even a felony. It was just a misdemeanor. So even if you got caught, you'd only spend a few months in jail. And so basically, because it was considered such a low-level crime, A, the statute of limitations on it was very short, and B, it any evidence that was collected because of the statute of limitations being so short was often thrown out pretty quickly with the idea being what's the point in keeping evidence of a crime that we can't even charge out anymore after the statute of limitations has expired so unfortunately a lot of the rape kits from the east area rapist were tossed out by different jurisdictions now a few did survive and these were used to compare to some of the rape kits from the murder victims and as a result in 2001 investigators including this paul holes were able to provide proof positive that dna from the east area rapist was the same as the dna from the suspect of the original night stalker so this is where they combined the moniker into eron's and it kind of is a turning point where all investigators 
are looking at the same suspect. So mainly you had the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker crime sprees. And they had investigators looking at both of them. Many thought they were related, but there was just no proof of it. So they were treating one as one suspect and the other as another suspect. And now they're able to combine them and say, this is all one guy. So let's all get together and see if we can solve this thing. And this is when the brother of uh, the med student is going to push for Proposition 69 in California. This is 2004, because now they're going to say, look, we can solve a whole lot of rapes and murders if we can just take this DNA profile we have and see if there's any matches. Now, when I see DNA profile, a lot of people don't quite understand how DNA profiling works in terms of how accurate it is so it's not the case where or dna profiling is not a case where you have it's an all or nothing thing there are cases where you get partial genetic profiles uh, from dna and this is especially the case in degraded or bad samples and if you put a few of these together you might get a, a a more complete profile but unless you have a very solid sample you're not going to get the quote-unquote complete profile that's going to really be able to identify a single suspect. And it's kind of like blood typing. You might get enough of a profile in order to eliminate some people, but without that slam dunk profile from a very good sample, you're likely kind of more or less eliminating people that couldn't provide that DNA and including people that could, but at the same time not identifying them 100% as the donor. So even in 2004, they're not going to have a DNA sample that's completely ideal. However, investigators are going to catch a break when they find that a coroner working for Ventura County during the Lyman and Charlene Smith murder had made a duplicate rape kit. So when Charlene Smith goes through for her autopsy, which is pretty standard procedure after all, for all homicide victims, she's going to have a, a rape exam done. And at this rape exam, they're going to collect DNA, in this case semen, from the rape victim that is going to be stored away somewhere in cooler at the police department with the hopes that someday you're going to develop a suspect that you can compare it to. And now again, this is night or the, the murder of Lyman and Charlene Smith is occurring in early in 1980. So this was standard procedure to collect these kits, but DNA is not going to be used widely by police departments for close to another decade. And it's really not going to come into widespread use within the court system for almost 20 years but this coroner did something a little bit different he would do duplicate kits and this is just something that he would do just because he felt it was best practice although he didn't know of any other coroners that were doing so and so if he had a homicide victim that had been raped that come through his coroner's office he would do one rape kit and send it off to the police and he'd do another rape kit and he'd keep it in a cooler at the at the coroner's office so when paul holes is looking around to see if anybody has any of these rape kits left he hits the gold mine when he finds out that there's this 30 plus year old 
perfectly preserved rape kit that's been sitting in the cooler at the Ventura County Coroner's Office since it had been completed in 1980. So now they've got this slam dunk 100% genetic profile for their killer. And they, and and this is one of those cases too where, yes, you can't identify 100% from those partial profiles that you're getting earlier on, but if you've got a complete profile and then you've got an incomplete profile, but all the markers are matching your complete profile, you can now say all of these crimes, the ones from the East Area Rapist that we've got partial profiles on, the ones in Southern California that we have partial profiles on, are all matching to this 100% complete profile we have from the Smith murders. Therefore, we now have the 100% complete profile of the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. So now they've got this complete profile, but they've run these profiles through the system and nobody's coming up as a match, meaning the profile they have is complete enough where it's comparing enough markers to everybody else in the system that nobody has to that point enough matching markers to be considered a suspect. But they also didn't before this have a complete enough profile to do what they're about to do. They're going to turn to forensic genealogy as a potential answer in this case. Now, the short story of how this came about is they submitted the DNA to a couple of these family history websites, and they did so with full knowledge of these websites as to what they were trying to find. However, these websites could only return distant relatives of the person whose profile they were submitting. So I think what I read is they got down to like maybe third cousins or something in a family tree based off of this and it's just not close enough because there's just too many possibilities of who that could be and the investigation was just overwhelming they 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 would maybe eventually find a person who could be a suspect but it just it, it was just too wide of a net to cast at that point so from what i understand from the research a couple of the investigators took it upon themselves to create a profile for some of the genealogy websites that were more accurate, but not necessarily, I wouldn't say willing to work with law enforcement, but they didn't want to risk getting turned down if they told them what they were up to. So they submitted this known criminal profile as their own profile to see what type of returns they would get in terms of family history. And they were able to get down to a set of cousins that was very closely related to their profile. And from there, I believe they went to a female that had submitted their DNA to this family website. Her DNA was pretty close to matching, but obviously she was female and she did have her brother. So they actually went to her, interviewed her to see if she would know of anybody in her family that might be responsible for the the Golden State killings. And she actually voluntarily submitted her DNA, which when they got her complete profile, they were able to say there's no way that her brother would be involved, but that they were for sure within one cousin link away that the, that there was a shared grandparent DNA 
amongst the parties. So from there, the list was narrowed down to six of her cousins, and pretty quickly they were able to identify that one guy lived in the area, and he was the only one that had blue eyes, which was a pretty distinct feature for the Golden State Killer throughout all of his crime sprees. So they're going to find this guy. His name is going to be Joseph D'Angelo. So now the, the job isn't done because everything's been done somewhat surreptitiously at this point, I guess. Like they're, they're getting backdoor access to these web, you know, this, the site, and they're looking at DNA of people who are close to him, and they're making assumptions based on his living area and his eyes, and, but they need his DNA to match the DNA pulled from the duplicate rape kit. So investigators found out where he worked and watched as he parked his car and walked into work. They then went over and swabbed his door handle and they also at the same time obtained trash from his trash can which was rolled out to the curb which from a legal standpoint in most states uh, once you've put your trash out on the curb it's considered abandoned property and therefore police do not need a search warrant for it. So in this case, they're going to find some trash that's going to contain his DNA. So whether that's a straw from a, a drinking cup or the lip of a, a soda can or, or whatever it may be, uh, they're going to they're going to swab the DNA at the door handle and this, and then compare those profiles to make sure they're, they're the same, and then compare it to the profile that they have from the Smith homicide. They're going to find out that both DNA samples they get are perfect matches to the DNA collected on, the, on at the Smith homicide. So at this point, the investigators realize they have, in fact, identified the Golden State Killer as Joseph D'Angelo. At this point, we'll, we'll step back and do that comparison I talked about, learn who he is and what was going on with his life. So Joseph D'Angelo was born on November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York. His father was a sergeant in the army and was stationed in West Germany after the Korean War. And he's stationed there with his entire family. And it's while he was stationed here that nine-year-old Joseph D'Angelo would see two servicemen rape his seven-year-old sister in a warehouse. It's also reported that Joseph D'Angelo's father regularly abused his mother. And it was to the point that even back in the days when domestic abuse wasn't really considered that much of a crime he was beating her so severely that the army actually told him that if he didn't stop he was going to be discharged so it had to be pretty severe that that this was going on and joseph d'angelo is witnessing this and it, a couple articles i read it's believed that joseph d'angelo's mother then took this out on her children especially joseph d'angelo his mother's eventually going to leave his father his father's going to go on to serve in Korea and start a whole second family. His mother's going to marry a guy and they're going to move to California. And this is where Joseph D'Angelo is going to spend his teenage years. So while a teen, as a teenager in California, there were reports that he liked to blow animals up and break into houses. That's really all I could find from his teenage years. The next kind of life marker is that he joins the navy in 1964 so this is going to be kind of the middle of the vietnam war and he's actually going to serve 22 months during vietnam as a maintenance worker on a couple of different ships in the vietnam theater 
So let's kind of take a sidestep here and break down some of the stuff we've learned up to this point about uh, Joseph D'Angelo. So we've talked about the early warning signs of a serial killer. And these include the McDonald Triangle, and we haven't mentioned before, but head injuries, are, especially head injuries sustained as a child, can be an indicator of later homicidal behavior. And I don't know if this is, we're learning so much about NFL players and NHL players that long after they've retired uh, are having these CTE issues with their brains. So we don't know at this point, I, there, this is kind of an area of study that they're looking at, but whether damage to the developing brain is causing some issues with violence uh, towards other people. The, another major marker is abuse as a child, which we definitely know that he suffered. And then a commonality amongst serial killers or violent offenders is service in the military. And being a veteran myself, I'm not trying to bash on military service here but it definitely seems like this is a common theme amongst a lot of violent offenders and there's two schools of thought to this one is that military service attracts people who are violent or homicidal because it's a sanctioned activity that involves taking the lives of others or violence the other school of thought is that it's a it's as a result of their service of either committing violence during their service uh, whether or not that be justified or experience or witnessing uh, things such as dead or mutilated bodies all that kind of stuff and the ptsd related to it that causes violent issues afterwards so the, again none of these kind of warning markers are 100 percent indicative that somebody is going to become a serial killer and somebody could have all four of these markers in their life and live a perfectly normal life and some people may have one or none of these markers and turn into a serial killer but when you look at the vast majority of serial killers and violent offenders there's going to be some of these warning markers that you're going to find in their life uh, and in the case of joseph d'angelo We've got, at least in the McDonald Triangle, we don't know about bedwetting, but he's got killing animals and blowing them up. And if we assume that bedwetting is in there, he's got the McDonald Triangle. We don't know about head injuries, but he did have military service and he both witnessed and experienced abuse at the hands of others. And when we talk about his mother taking it out on him, there's a lot of cases of some of the most heinous uh, violent offenders and serial killers against women have a history with a abusive mother. And it's thought that as they grow up, they resent women and feel like they need to have power or control over women because they didn't have that growing up. So whether you look at Ed Kemper, Ed Gein, the son of Sam, uh, some of these serial killers, one thing they have in common is they have this abusive domineering uh, mother in their life that results in them taking out their aggressions on women uh, later in life. But we'll get back on track here. After leaving the Navy in 1968, he begins attending college in Rockland, California, which is about 22 miles east of Sacramento. He begins dating a woman named Bonnie Colwell. She's a nursing student at the college, 
and she's your typical shy and kind of straight-laced teenage girl and he's this you know worldly vietnam vet he's he was described as being very outgoing so he's kind of that the guy that seeks the attention at the center of the room and she, and she's that shy girl that kind of gets swept away by this guy that's got all these stories and and everybody seems to want to be around so now her father was strict about who she dated but he's a world war ii vet and he warms to joseph d'angelo because he's a vietnam vet now, joseph d'angelo is missing a part of one of his fingers and he would tell everybody that it was shot off during a river patrol while in combat in vietnam however i believe it was it was some type of an accident because he never at least in combat he never left the ship he was a maintenance worker on these ships that would shell enemy positions from from the ocean so he never actually saw combat but he would tell people he did and i think as a result his lies won over uh bonnie's father bonnie would later say there were red flags in the relationship joseph acted as if rules didn't apply to him so he'd often trespass on government property He'd do this so that he could spear frogs. He would often poach deer out of season and without a hunting license. But young love is young love, and sometimes you can ignore red flags. But in 1970, Joseph proposed to her with a solitaire diamond ring. She would later say she questioned where he got enough money to afford the large diamond ring. His claim was that he bought it while he was on shore leave in Southeast Asia. And I guess there could be some truth to this story. I mean... When you're in the military, especially when you're in in the Navy, if you're out at sea or any service, you're deployed somewhere, all your food and housing and expenses are being taken care of. So any money that you're being paid by the military is just kind of going into a bank account and, and guys spend that and gals spend that on all types of things. So he could have picked up this ring in Vietnam. It just doesn't seem like something that someone who doesn't have a significant other is going to purchase my belief is as we talked about earlier as he was a teenager he was already breaking into homes that he likely stole this ring from a house and then was presenting it to her for his proposal now bonnie's going to put up with a lot but the final straw for colwell happened in 1971 apparently joseph was failing a college class ironically enough it was an abnormal psychology class, and he asked Bonnie to help him cheat. She said no, and he kept insisting, kept going back to her, saying different ways that she could help him cheat. And she finally had enough and called off the engagement. Approximately two weeks later, Joseph shows up at her window in the middle of the night, begins tapping on it. So she goes to open the curtain, and there is Joseph standing there with a gun pointed at her, telling her to get dressed and that they were going to Reno that night to get married. Bonnie runs to her father, who puts her in the bathroom and tells her not to come out until he comes back. And it's about two hours later, and she's thinking this whole time she's going to hear a gunshot that he's going to shoot, that uh, Joseph's going to shoot her father. Eventually, her father comes back in, tells her that Joseph would now be leaving her alone. And she's not sure why her father never called the police about this incident, but she feels strongly that it was because he knew that Joseph was going to school to be a cop, and that if he called the police, this would ruin his chance of becoming a cop and ruin his life, and he didn't want to do that to another veteran. So Bonnie would say that after her, she talked with her dad, she saw Joseph walking away from the house and saw him toss her engagement ring that she'd given back to him into the woods by her house. 
So this is either more proof that this ring really held no value to him. So either it wasn't a valuable ring in the first place. If you actually purchase this ring with your own money, whether it be in Southeast Asia or anywhere, you likely wouldn't just toss this away as if it was garbage, but he did. The story even said that she and her friends went looking for the ring to try to find it so they could sell it for money and never found it. So part of her thinks he might have just faked throwing it away. She didn't actually see the ring fly, but just part of the story that I found interesting. Joseph's going to turn his studies around. He's going to graduate with honors and begin attending Sacramento State University later in 1971. He then achieves his bachelor's degree in law enforcement and further his police training in the College of the Sequoias in Visalia. So this is where we're going to pause and see how this first spree, the Cordova Cat Burglar, matches up. So the Cordova Cat Burglar is going to haunt the Rancho Cordova area from 1972 to 1973. Uh, Joseph D'Angelo was living in the area at the time, and at least one media source commented on how he was actively breaking into homes as a teenager. So... It makes sense that he would continue to do this, especially when we know that certain aspects of his crime, which is the drinking the beers and eating the food, etc., is going to be part of his thrill during the crimes we know are later perpetrated by Joseph D'Angelo. So while there isn't any evidence to directly link him to the Cordova Cat Burglar, we know he's living in the area at the time. We know that he's committing acts during these crimes that he will commit later on in the crimes he's he's both linked to and will confess to so it goes to to believe that this cordova cat burglar was likely uh, joseph d'angelo now in 1973 joseph d'angelo is going to get hired by the exeter police department at this time the town's around 5,000 people and it's located just east of visalia he will be assigned to exeter's burglary unit which seems odd considering the town only has 5,000 people in it and I can't imagine a town of 5,000 people is going to have that many burglaries, but it makes me wonder if this wasn't a response to the Visalia ransacker spree that's going on. Because while I read that most of these crimes occurred in Visalia, there were a lot of crimes that were reported in Exeter where he worked at this time as well. So I don't know if this was, you know, what part of the chicken or the egg is going on here. If these burglaries were occurring just at a normal pace and he gets assigned to this unit and he gets additional training in burglaries or whether it's in response to him committing so many burglaries. Now in 1972 he's going to meet a woman named Sharon Marie Huddle and she's from the Rancho Cordova Citrus Heights area that he grew up in. So he's going to get married to her. Now he's going to work for Exeter from 1973 to August of 1976. So this is the exact time frame for the Visalia ransacker crime spree. Most of the reported crimes stopped after the McGowan shooting in December 1975, but this is going to make sense that being a police officer, Joseph D'Angelo is likely going to be pretty shaken up by the, the fact that he almost got caught and that he had to shoot at a police officer. And the heat was probably so intense that he was looking for an exit in early 1976. Now, in August 1976, he gets that exit when he's hired by the Auburn Police Department. Auburn is a town just northeast of Sacramento, and this is very close to Joseph D'Angelo's old hunting grounds of Rancho Cordova. Now, while the first East Area Rapist rape occurred on June 18th, 
and he's not going to be hired and living in the area till August that we know of, it is likely that he's traveling back and forth to the area as part of the job change. Now, I couldn't find any record of it, but it would be interesting to see if there was anything with his new job, like an interview or a physical test or something that occurred on the days the two of that the two rapes prior to August of 1976 occurred. And he also has reason to be back in this area. I mean, his this is his hometown, this is where his in-laws live, all that kind of stuff. But it just makes me wonder, while he's still working for Exeter and getting ready to go start working for this Auburn Police Department, a lot of times at the police department interviews, there's uh, physical tests, there's backgrounds, all that kind of stuff. If he's coming and going from Exeter to Auburn, and that puts him right in the area of these two rapes prior to August of, August of 76, that makes sense that even though he's not technically in the area he has reason to be in the area when these crimes occur after he starts working for auburn in august 1976 this is where 44 of the rapes and the double homicide of the young couple walking their dog are going to occur while he's employed by the auburn police department and i mentioned i was going to try to line up some of the breaks when we ran through all of the that extensive list of crimes he committed we found a couple times where there was you know a month and a half break or almost a two-month break i tried to see if there was any life events um or career events that would have lined up with him uh having those breaks but nothing really matched up I and mean, there wasn't a whole lot of information about his life at the time other than that he worked for the police department it's also possible that he did commit crimes during these time periods but they just went unreported there would be a case later on where after he was identified, a woman would come forward and say that she was also raped by him, but her parents refused to let, she was 15 at the time, and her parents refused to let her report it. So it makes sense that even though we've got some gaps in there, that doesn't mean he wasn't committing crimes at that time. It just means they might not have been reported. His employment with the Auburn Police Department would come to an end after his August 29th, 1979 arrest for shoplifting. He's caught trying to steal a hammer and dog repellent, and the two employees that caught him had to tie him to a chair because he was f trying to fight them to get away. And the Auburn Police Department, or Auburn Police Chief, would fire him on the spot. So, again, he's likely trying to steal this hammer, which would then turn around and be used as a murder weapon at some point and be untraceable to him because there's going to be, if he steals it, there's no record of him ever buying it. And then, of course, dog repellent because he's always running into issues with dogs and likely there was some case prior to august 29th of 1979 where he ran into a dog and decided that it would be good for him to have dog repellent along for his crimes joseph d'angelo is going to file a lawsuit against the department of uh, the auburn police department claiming he had been harassed by the chief but during a mandated psychological test as part of the lawsuit he admitted he tried to kill the chief now, the chief remembers an evening during which his four-year-old daughter said there was a man at the window with a flashlight, and this is after he fired uh, D'Angelo. And the chief would check the, check the window later and find shoe prints under it, but he thought he was having some construction work on the house. He thought maybe it was some construction workers. D'Angelo would admit to the doctor that he went there that night to kill the chief, but he couldn't find the right window. So th I think this is going to effectively end the, the lawsuit because uh, this information is going to come out if he continues to go with the lawsuit. And if he doesn't, it must be doctor-client privilege at this point. But 
the shoplifting charge and termination from the department bring an end to the East Area Rapist Reign of Terror. After August of 1979, we're not going to see any more East Area Rapist attacks. In fact, his last attempted attack was on July 5th. In fact, that was the case in which the victim actually shouted him down, and then the male victim and the female victim were able to escape. So it's clear that after July 5th, he's taking a little bit of a break, and then he's arrested that following month and fired as a police officer. Now, as a result of his employment coming to an end, it's possible he lost a serious tactical advantage that he had while being a police officer. As a police officer, he would have access to information the public did not in regards to things such as additional patrols, uh, stakeouts, progression in the investigation, and it's even possible that he had access to a police radio, and he likely would have felt some level of protection in regards to just being a police officer and kind of feeling like he had control, which at this point he's now lost. So with the loss of the job and the heat at an all-time high, this is likely going to propel him to change his hunting grounds and change how he does things, which is, is why he shifted his attacks down to the Southern California area. And ultimately, if you look back on it, this does have the desired effect because of the distance he creates from the Sacramento area, those initial attacks, although, again, some investigators did believe it was the work of the East Area Rapist, a lot of them are going to question the geographical distance and a chain, some minor changes in the, his method of operation that's going to buy him for several decades the idea that the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker are two different people. So he does choose to go down to Galido, but his first attack is a fail. So now he's going to switch his method again. And I think at this point, he's lost his job. He's lost control in his life. He's had two failed attempts at doing what he used to be good at doing. And so when the male doctor in Galido jumps at him, I think this is when he decides he's just going to kill and he doesn't care and he doesn't hesitate. And, and so this is when he kills both the doctors and now because he doesn't have as much control over the small area that he did prior, this is why he's going to spread out and commit these crimes in different locate or different communities again, to make it harder for the investigators to link him to them but it would also be to lessen his chance of getting caught as he doesn't know these agencies and he doesn't know if they're after he commits a crime if they're going to increase their patrols or do stakeouts or anything along along those lines he's also going to have to spend more time driving down there so he's not going to be able to just quickly run over and recon a place he's going to have to going to have to spend some significant amount of time dedicated to the drive down there now the last main killing i guess of, uh, on that spree of murders which is the uh, sherry domingo case that's going to occur on july 27th of 1981 here's where his life i think kind of comes into play in september of 1981 his first daughter is born 
and he's not going to strike again until May of 1986. There's going to be a break, and whether that's a natural break, because with the birth of his daughter, there's a psychological change in him where he doesn't feel this desire and need to kill, or he's going to you know, have other responsibilities on him that he just can't sneak out in the middle of the night like he used to, and you know, there's somebody else that requires a lot more of his attention. But whatever the reason, you know, there's going to be this break after 1981. Now, he's not going to strike again until May of 1986, which is going to be his last murder. And this is going to be six months before his second daughter is born. He's going to have another daughter in May of 1989. But focusing on the time between 1981 and 1986, that break, and then that final murder, it's likely that he stopped in 81 after the birth of his first daughter, and he might have even taken a break during the Richard Ramirez murders because this guy's attracting a lot of police attention in 83 and 84 in the same area where he was doing his killings. So even if, as the child, as his first daughter grows up a little bit, he gets a little bit more freedom to, to do the things he would want to do in the past, it's likely that he had to stay on the down low because this Richard Ramirez guy is causing police to go right back to extra patrols and stakeouts. And it's, again, in the area where he had just committed these crimes a few years prior. So then after Richard Ramirez is caught, maybe he feels he can't suppress the, the need to do this anymore. Or maybe he just is jealous of the notoriety that Richard Ramirez got. And with May of 1986, is six months before his second daughter is born, so maybe he doesn't even realize his wife is pregnant again. And if he does, maybe this is his last hurrah before he realizes he's going to have to take another hiatus. And then with his third daughter being born, you know, just a few years later, maybe it's just can't do it anymore. Plus, he's he's gotten older at this point, so it, it's it's just interesting to see because most people believe that he had died or especially in some type of a home invasion robbery because he had switched his motive a lot of people later on said that he didn't have he didn't use a gun in his crimes and a lot of the, the later murders now a lot of people said that and said that he was getting more risky there were a couple cases in both east area rapist and i think some other cases where they people said that they saw a holster uh, on his hip so I highly doubt he ever broke into any of these houses without having a firearm on him and that he chose not to use it in situations where he didn't need to to make it look like it was not a firearms related crime. I also find it hard to believe that he would have been able to subdue adult males and females in situations where he committed these murders without a firearm. Uh, because he's always waking them up from a distance with the flashlight. So if somebody's just holding a flashlight or a knife and they're 10, 12 feet away, and you know that people have been getting murdered in the middle of the night, I think your natural reaction would be to try to fight that person. But if that person has a flashlight and a gun, now things are a little bit different. You might go along with what they have to say because you're pretty confident you can't get to that gun before you're going to get shot. So anyway, despite what... 
what reasons he what that he stopped and again some people believed it was that he was killed or that he was put in jail we look back on it it's very likely that it had something to do with the change in his family structure now it's very clear that joseph d'angelo was an extremely disturbed individual he learned from a young age about rape domination violation and control and i think these would become his driving force as he became an adult now he also had access to law enforcement tactics training and case information and i believe he used this plus the horrible low priority approach to rape of the time in order to get away with his crimes for so long and then when he was finally at a point where he didn't need to commit these crimes anymore or just didn't have that desire you know he's got this new family and he's just moving on with his life so so with the last murder being in 1986 what did he do from 86 until he was caught so he immediately after he was fired from the auburn police department he started working for save mart supermarkets as a semi-tractor mechanic uh, he's probably utilizing the skills he learned from the navy to do some mechanic work he was actually praised by his oldest daughter for being the most attentive and loving father she could ask for so while he's a monster when he's out and about in the public and committing these crimes apparently at least to his daughters he's this lovable father that will do anything for them when they asked his neighbors what he was like, some neighbors described him as quiet and nice and a guy that would give you the shirt off his back. Now, others described him as a neighbor from hell. So my guess is it depended on what, if you got on his bad side or not. This one neighbor who apparently was on his bad side said that Joseph D'Angelo would be out in the middle of the night yelling about killing women and using obscenities. So it's clear that he still has issues in the late 80s 90s and beyond it's just that as far as we know he's not acting upon them now some people would bring into question you know he's married in 1973 and doesn't have his first kid till 1981 like where was his wife through all this what well, he's committing hundreds of crimes and she doesn't know about it so she would come out afterwards and say during this time she was a lot of times she was working the graveyard shift while going to law school and when she wasn't working at night he had all these excuses now for most of that time he was a police officer so he could use the excuse he's getting called in you know, he's on the burglary unit so he's getting called in for to process a scene or to work a case and then even after he was a he was fired from the police department he always had something again he'd still use the work emergencies uh, he would say he's going pheasant hunting or he'd go to visit his parents that lived hundreds of miles away so she took him at his word that when he was gone in the middle of the night or for a few days at a time that there was a legitimate reason that he was going and she had no idea that he was committing these crimes despite her having no idea he's committing these crimes he and his wife separated in 1991 and their divorce was finalized in 2018 now one thing i did find that was slightly ironic is that it mentioned that his ex-wife was going to school for or was going to law school and she was actually a divorce attorney so it does seem strange that two people who separate in 1991 and one of them's a divorce attorney and they don't finalize their divorce for 17 years i don't know i just just found that ironic so joseph d'angelo was arrested on april 24th of 2018 in his initial arrest he faced eight counts of first degree murder because they only had evidence on him for the rape cases that ended with him killing the victim. So they didn't have evidence per se that he killed 
say like the couple walking their dog there would be no evidence no no dna left at the scene claude snelling's murder would not have any evidence left at the scene so there, there was a few cases of of murders where they didn't have the evidence at the time they charged him but on may 10th he was going to be charged with four more counts of first degree murder when asked why he committed these crimes joseph d'angelo eventually he made a claim that it wasn't him that committed the crimes he had this evil alter ego named jerry that lived inside him and made him commit the crimes and if you remember he would often say things at crime scenes about his mommy or some other things and and people to this day don't know if he was using that as a psychological excuse and that he would he had already pre-planted back when he was committing these crimes the idea that he could claim he has multiple personalities or if there really is some truth to that uh, there wasn't really anything to, to suggest that when he went through any type of psychological exams he was diagnosed with anything due to the statute of limitations we talked about earlier he could not be charged with any of the rapes or burglaries but he was there's no statute of limitations on murder or kidnapping so he was charged with 13 counts of first degree murder and 13 counts of kidnapping originally the prosecutors are going to announce that they're going to seek the death penalty and this is i think the third time we've talked about it in only a few a handful of cases where the death penalty has come up is that this is often a ploy by the prosecutors to try to get a plea deal and this is partly due to the overall number of crimes and the victims and the time frame they thought that a trial would could take up to 10 years and cost taxpayers around 20 million dollars so on april 10th they're going to announce that they're going to seek the death penalty for joseph d'angelo and it's not going to take long on march 4th of 2020 he's going to plead to all counts now he didn't have to and i'm not giving him credit because he doesn't deserve any credit um, but he didn't have to but he did admit to almost all the rapes burglaries and attacks related to the crimes that were associated under the umbrella of the golden state killer i didn't find if this included the cordova cat burglar cases uh, but basically if there's a total of 74 charges of murder attempted murder rape and attempted rape that he admitted to or pled guilty to again you could only plead to the cases that were out well still within the statute of limitations but he admitted to several crimes outside of those statute of limitations so and then i looked at another website that listed out all of the phone calls he made the prowlings that they believe were related to him etc during all four of the suspected crime scenes and if you add all those up you arrive at a number closer to about 500 different times he committed a crime that is somehow documented but those are just reported incidents so if you consider all the times he prowled and didn't get seen or caught uh times he committed crimes that were never even reported it's very easy to safely say that his actual number of crimes he committed is well over a thousand so on august 21st 2020 joseph d'angelo was sentenced to 12 consecutive life sentences plus eight years without the possibility of parole now the only other thing to note here is that in november of 2021 he was transferred to protective custody due to security issues and this is likely going to be any time you get a extremely high profile prisoner and this is 
now a 70 plus year old man that is in poor health so it's not like he's a guy that can really defend himself anyway and not not that he deserves to be a guy that can defend himself but there's a certain notoriety that especially prisoners that are never going to see the light of day again that they seek out by killing inmates with higher notoriety Joseph D'Angelo has a giant target on his back while he's in prison, and it's likely only a matter of time before he dies in prison from either natural causes or another inmate attack. But again, I'm not going to uh, not going to be too worried about either of those happening. I hope they happen sooner than later. But so that's going to wrap up the story of the terror in California and one of the most evil predators walk this planet. But before we go, um, I do have a hero out of this whole terrible story. So while it's difficult to pick one hero because I don't want to take anything away from any of this guy's victims or survivors of his victims, um, they're all heroes in their own way, um, either as, as survivors or fighting for the people they lost. We talked about the brother uh, that of the pre-med student that died that fought for proposition 69 in California. And apparently he spent $2 million of his own money to lobby for that, uh, to pass. And he did get it passed. And there were several crimes that were solved as a result of him getting that passed. So, you know, there's, there's a bunch of heroes in this story, but the one I want to focus on outside of the victims is, uh, one woman who kind of stands out. So back in the 1970s, we talked about how things were different. Police departments, government lawmakers, and the criminal justice system as a whole was almost 100% male. And this is likely why rape was seen no more as no more than a misdemeanor and punishable by just a few months in jail, if the case ever got that far. Rape was often looked at as the woman's fault, and it was treated much like a shoplifting case. Thankfully, we have come so far in the last 40 or 50 years away from this mentality, but it's going to be people like Carol Daly who drove that change. So Carol Daly was the only female de detective investigating the East Area rapist attacks. She started with Sacramento County in 1968. I think they only had two females in the county at the time, and she was one of six that was hired. This is just to show the time frame here. She was required to wear skirts and high heels and carry her gun in her purse when she was a detective. So... This is a long shot from where we are today, and again, I'm glad that we've come as far as we have. But Carol had a way with people and was able to sit and talk with the victims of the East Area Rapist for hours. She personally interviewed every single rape victim in her jurisdiction in Sacramento County, which amounted to a total of 36 rape victims. It would be during these very difficult interviews that she would develop the pattern the rapist used that would eventually tie him to so many other crimes. Even as difficult as these interviews are, you're asking very personal questions, and every time you ask a victim of a violent crime and sit down with them, it, it tears a little bit of your soul. And she's doing this time and time again. I mean, all of those times that I read off a crime... You know, Carol Daly's at almost all of them. She would also go on to help build the standardized rape kit, which we now call SAFE kits, as SAFE is Sexual Assault Forensic Exam. Uh, prior to this East Area Rapist case, the, at least in Sacramento County, I'm guessing it was kind of a free-for-all what was actually collected during these 
these exams and she helped kind of establish a standardized exam make it easier and more effective to process these rapes. She would go on to serve as the undersheriff for Sacramento County and she was the first woman to do so before retiring in 2001. As a testament to how much she meant to the victims after uh, Joseph D'Angelo's arrest and during his trial, she talked with several of the victims. Six of them agreed to speak out at sentencing and requested her to be in the courtroom when they spoke, and one asked her to speak on her behalf. So it's women like Carol Daly who broke down barriers and paved the way for women all across law enforcement, and she did it while bringing comfort to so many in such traumatic times and leaving such a lasting impression. So again, out of this terrible, terrible, terrible story, um, there's this woman who, in my mind, is a true hero. I want to thank you all for listening. I know this was a long four episodes, and this episode's going a little long as well. Stay tuned for future episodes. Feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com, and you can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook. If you can, please support me on Patreon, and I believe I'll have some episodes still coming out this week. I've got my Flyover Country episode coming out next, and then I'll probably try to hit some some shorter, less involved crimes leading into our our next international crime coming up here. So appreciate everyone listening. You guys have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye.